you have your Bibles and can open up to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we have been working through this uh, series called Naked and Unashamed, and I know that that sounds really clickbait, and it's like we just want to draw people in because of all the scandal around that, but it's actually a text straight from Scripture, and uh, we're going to dig in and see what God has for us uh, today, and I'm excited uh, to be able to do that. Um, but I wanted to kind of introduce the idea this way. When I, when, back in 1995, my family got its very first personal computer. And uh, if you're old enough to remember like when that happened, then you remember what a big deal that it was. And so we got this computer and it had like a color screen. It wasn't like the black screen with the green letters anymore or anything like that. It was like a full color computer. And so you're like, this is pretty cool. It had this thing called a CD-ROM drive. It still had the floppy disk too, but you had the CD-ROM drive, which was really great. And right about that same time, you started getting these CDs in the mail from this company called America Online. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So like once a week, you would get this CD in the mail, and it was this America Online thing, and they wanted you to sign up for their service so that you could access this thing called the internet. And it was a pretty big deal back in that day. And so we had these things called modems, and I had this 28.8K modem in my computer, which at the time was like the peak of internet speed. You could download a picture in like three minutes. Um, so, like, things were really good in the Ainsworth household, and so we're logging into AOL, uh, like I'm sure you guys were, because this is how the average Joe got onto the internet back in those days. And, uh, but, so AOL continues to grow as a company, and they're getting bigger and bigger. They have chat rooms, and they, then they, like, create this thing called Instant Messenger, which, like, changed the world for a ton of people at the time. And so they're doing really well, and by the year 2000, America Online was a $125 billion company. But something happened. There came this moment in the history of the world where America Online had to make a decision of what they were going to do in the future. It was this critical moment where they had basically had to decide, are we going to continue to press into the future or kind of stay where we are? And for America Online, that moment was broadband internet. And so I remember in my house, when we got broadband internet for the first time, it made no sense to keep paying for America Online anymore. It didn't change as a service. You could just access it along with the rest of your internet. And so what happened is across America, people started canceling their America Online service and just instead clicking straight on Internet Explorer and the internet was there for them because nobody wanted to double up on those payments. And when we look at Scripture, specifically today in Genesis chapter 3, I think we're going to see another really critical moment in history. But for us, it's one that's so much bigger and that carries so many more consequences because ultimately it deals with every single one of us. And we struggle with the results of that critical moment every single day. And that is the fall of man. Charlie talked last week about marriage and in talking about the way that he framed it was that um, pre-fall we had this kind of ideal marriage where things were great in the garden and Adam and Eve had had a wonderful relationship together and a wonderful relationship with God and then something happened and all of a sudden we're dealing with the real marriage and that is the result of of the fall and we are dealing with sin and we're trying to understand how to relate with each other and trying to to know what to do And then ultimately, we needed to be working towards this redeemed state of marriage where we're allowing God to come in and and change us and redeem our brokenness and make us more like him day in and day out. And so today, as we're looking 
in Genesis chapter 3, I want to go ahead and give you a warning that there's not a happy ending to this passage. In fact, it ends in tragedy. And so because of that, this is a tough sermon, and it's a hard sermon to walk with because we still wear the results of the first sin of the fall of man every single day, individually and in our relationships. If you look back in Genesis 1 and 2, everybody's happy and and things are great. And there's this pivot moment in Scripture that happens in Genesis 3. Because if you move ahead to Genesis 4, you find out that all of a sudden there's lying and there's murder and there's anger. And there's all these terrible things in the world. And all of that takes place because of what happens here in chapter 3. And it is a critical moment in human history that changes everything. And so we're going to be talking about sin. And I realize it's not warm and fuzzy to preach a sermon on sin and to have to listen to a sermon on sin. But unless we understand the effect of sin in our lives, and unless we can own our own sin, then we can never take the step to let God come in and begin to redeem us and begin to redeem our relationships. And so our goal today is to understand how sin has affected not just us individually, but how it's affected our relationships as well. Before we can understand the promise of the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the pit of our own sin. And so I want to invite you into this idea today as we dig into Genesis 3. And if you're here and you're married, then this is easy for you because the application is simple and it's there and you're going to get it. But maybe you're in this room and you're not married. Maybe you're too young to be married. Whatever the reason may be, I want you to know there's still something for you. Because the consequences of sin affect more relationships than just marriage. They affect your relationship with your parents. They affect your friendships. They affect any kind of dating relationship that you may be in. And if you can hone in on this and understand this today, then you might be a little better off than the rest of us walking into a future marriage relationship. And so we want to dig into Genesis chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start reading in verse 1. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The first thing that we find out about sin in our relationships through verses 1 through 5 is that sin deceives. And chapter 2 ended with Adam and Eve and this blissful marriage relationship where they became one flesh and they were naked and they were unashamed together. And all of a sudden, chapter 3 moves and we get introduced to a new character who's the serpent. And we don't have an origin story on the serpent really in this passage, but we do know that the serpent talks and that's weird. Uh, The serpent is described as being crafty. So like he's intelligent and he's thinking. That means he's a little deceitful. And it's interesting that Eve is not surprised that there is a talking serpent right there. So something is going on with this serpent. We do know in Revelation that Satan is referred to as a serpent, likely looking back at this passage. But what we do know about this is that this serpent is attacking the words of God. This serpent is bringing in deceit for the the first time into history. He knows the commands that God has given to Adam and Eve, But he decides to twist these commands 
causing questions around what God has said and ultimately leading Eve to question the things that God had said. I want want to kind of show you how this works out. And so if you look, I think up on the screen, we're going to have kind of uh, some illustration of what this looks like. But um, if you look at the, what Eve's, what the serpent says, and then compare that um, to what God said, you're going to see a difference. And so Satan says, or the serpent says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so this is what the serpent says to Eve. When if you look back, what God actually says is, God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so the serpent is immediately bringing deceit into the picture and saying, listen, did God really tell you that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Twisting the words of God and causing there to be a lot of questions around what God is doing. If you look in verses 2 and 3, Eve responds to the serpent, and you see again this kind of idea. So Eve says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now Eve does this in three different ways. Notice the differences here in what's said. So God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And when Eve tells the serpent what's going on, she says, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She takes the word surely out. And what this is doing is she's kind of diminishing the freedom that God had given them in the garden to enjoy everything that the garden had to take in and and just have great freedom in what God had given them. And Eve begins to diminish that. The second thing that she does is that she adds a phrase that God never said to what uh, is going on here. And she says, you may not, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, God never told Adam and Eve that they could not touch the fruit from that tree. But by adding this command to what God said, Eve is making God more strict. He's making God more stern. It makes it seem like he's this overbearing one who's ruling and lording over them and not wanting them to have any fun or to enjoy things in life. And these are things that we do with authority. Think about your kids. If your kids come to you and ask you for something, let's say like ice cream, and they say, mom, dad, can I have some ice cream? And, and we may say at the moment, no, not right, right now we're not going to do ice cream. Uh, they're going to immediately probably go to the other spouse and ask for the same thing and complain about the fact that you just said that they could never have ice cream again. Like we just compound these kinds of things. Or maybe at work, your boss has brought you in and and talked to you about a difficult situation and maybe given you a warning and you immediately walk out of that meeting and go to a coworker and you said, I cannot believe this guy, what he said to me, he is getting ready to fire me. This is the worst. I hate this job. And you magnify or blow up these things. Because if we can make the people who are authorities in our lives seem like a tyrant, then all of a sudden we're not guilty. They're the ones who bear the responsibility for what happened and not us. In verses 4 and 5, Satan comes back and just blatantly disagrees with what the Lord had said because he comes and says, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. And God has said the complete opposite. The truth is they're going to die. It's not in the way that they expect it to happen, but it's coming. So Satan paints God to be this repressive Lord over them by saying that uh, God doesn't want you to have these freedoms. He doesn't want you to be able to experience 
these things. Because listen, if you eat of that fruit, you can become like him. You're going to know the things that he knows, and you're going to understand the things that, that he understands. And these lies of Satan worked on Eve, and they continue to work on us today. Because God has given us blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing, but the one thing that we complain about is the thing that God has told us no about. And he tells us no for a reason, to protect us, to guard us, because he knows what's best for us. You've probably heard this statistic before that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I want to tell you this morning that 100% of marriages have deceit in them. It's rampant. It is getting in the way of our relationships and building these barriers between us. Because if we're in the position where we see ourselves first in any relationship, then we're always going to be willing to deceive the other person to keep ourselves in that seat. And we do it all the time. It can, it can span something huge like covering up an affair that you've had or husbands, maybe you have a problem with pornography or it can be something really small, like you've agreed to uh, go on a diet together and you're sneaking food behind your spouse's back. Maybe your spending is, is a little out of control because you keep behind your spouse's back buying those things that you think you can't live without and you kind of just keep that from them so they don't know what is going on. Maybe you're watching things on television or when you're not around your spouse that you don't need to be watching. Or maybe when you're out with the guys or out with the ladies, you have more drinks than your spouse would approve of and thinking that you can get away with it. Whatever it may be, all of these things create more distance between us and our spouse or us and any person that we are in relationship with each other. And there's no way that we can be laid bare with someone if we're clothed in deceit. So you may be in a situation this morning where you're in a marriage and and you have these layers of deceit between you and your spouse, and you may not even recognize each other. You may say, this isn't the person that I'm married anymore. This isn't the person that I agreed to spend the rest of my life with. I don't even know who they are because there are so many layers of deceit between you and them. What I want to encourage you to do this morning is it's time that we begin to unravel those layers. We're going to talk a lot about application today, but it's really simple. And for this point, it's simply this. And we need to confess our deceit. We need to be people who are willing to come to the people that we love and are in relationship with and confess the fact that we have been hiding things from them, that there have been deceitful things between us. And we've got to begin to be honest if we really want to be naked and unashamed with each other. Because there's no way that we can be what God has created us to be in relationship unless we are honest about what who we are and what is going on in our lives. I understand this isn't easy. There's a lot of you who are in here this morning and, and I'm talking about this and you have all of these things popping in your head right now saying, well, I could never tell my spouse that. How would they take it? What would happen? What would I do? How would I even have that conversation? I know it's hard, but I also want you to know that we're here for you. We want to help you. And so if there's any way that you can come to uh, any of us who are on staff, we would love to have the opportunity to talk with you, to pray with you, to help you walk through what is probably a difficult conversation and could be uh, really difficult for your spouse as well. We want to do our best. And, and it may be the situation where you uh, need to get connected with someone who can sit down with both of you and help you walk through that conversation. If that's the case, we can help you. We can help you get connected with someone who can walk with you through that, and we certainly want to do that. 
know this, like you're not going to be the first person. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had many people in our church come to us and say, hey, God's been dealing with me with this and I need to talk to my spouse about this. What do I do? You're not going to be the first person and you certainly won't be the last either. But we have got to create space for God to redeem our marriages, for God to redeem our relationships. And, and for the spouse that is hearing these confessions, I know that's hard. I know that's difficult. But I want to beg you to be gracious. I know that when you're sitting in that situation and you're hearing these things, that likely you're going to be angry. We want to encourage you to invite God into those conversations before you have them. Spend some time praying together. And be as gracious as you can because that your spouse is confessing those things to you because they want your marriage to be better. Not because they want to hurt you, not because they want to make this more difficult, but because they love you and they want it to be better. If they didn't care about that, if they didn't want it to be better, they would ignore it and walk away. But the fact that they're going to come to you and confess means that they want to allow God to start redeeming. So we see that sin deceives. But number two in verse six, we see that sin is lazy. It says in verse six, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so Eve looks at the fruit and sees that it's appealing, um, but not just physically. Now it's appealing because she feels like she can become like God if she takes this fruit and she eats it. And so she does it. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Taking a bite out of fruit that's a moment that shook all of eternity. And the shocker to the whole story is that Scripture tells us that she turns and gives some to her husband who was with her. That this entire moment and conversation that she had been having with this serpent, Adam was standing right there the whole time. And he never did anything. He never tried to stop his wife. He never tried to protect her or guard her. He never tried to defend God and the things that God had said. He just stood there doing nothing, and watching it happen the entire time. We can't really, but I feel like we can maybe almost give Eve a pass because she never heard this command directly from God. But Adam is standing there who God has said, you shall not eat of the fruit of this tree. And he lets his wife do it, and then he does it himself. And Adam is pure and simple, just lazy and passive. And a lot of times, this is what our sin is. We may not actively be doing something to harm our relationship or hurt our relationship, but the fact that we just sit back and do our thing, that is the thing that is killing marriages around our country. We see the effect of this around the world. I think today, one of the best examples of lazy relationships is social media. Think about it. I have 1,488 friends on Facebook, because that is insane. Like, I don't know all those people. They send me a friend request, and I'm like, I check to see if we have any friends in common, and then I hit accept, and I'm like, that's great, good to know. But like, if they came up and walking up to me, I wouldn't know who they are. Some of them I haven't talked to in uh, 15 years, 20 years, but yet we're friends. And, and, and our, this whole idea has like taught us that like friendship is easy. It's simple. That as long as I don't tag somebody in a post and say that they're a terrible person, like we're going to continue to be friends probably for the rest of my life on Facebook. Like it tells us that relationships are easy, but the truth is it's not the case at all. They take work and they take initiative and we have to press in to make sure 
that we're not letting things fall by the wayside. And so has, has sin caused laziness in your marriage? Maybe you come home from work exhausted every day and your kids are crazy and you spend time with them and you make it through dinner time, finally get them in bed and you're so tired that the only thing that you want to do is crash and turn the TV on and tune everything out. The problem with that is that it's lazy. And every single time you do that, it builds a barrier between you and your spouse because you are telling her or him that they are not important that you are more important than they are in that moment. I get it. I, I feel that temptation every single night. It's a difficult thing, but it is one that we have got to become intentional about. It's one thing that we need to do is confess our laziness to each other. And maybe that's it for your marriage this week as you sit down and have a conversation. It's just for you to say, hey, I've been lazy. There's no excuse for it. If our spouse is the most important person in the world to us and the most important relationship that we have, even more than our kids, that we have got to make that a priority and we've got to press into that. I realize that's a little countercultural. Like our culture would tell us that our kids are the most important thing in the world and that we need to make sure they're good. And if we can do that, then that's great. But that's not what we see in Scripture. Scripture is always putting the relationship between spouses as more important. The Bible doesn't say, husbands, love your kids as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for them. But it does say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for him. And that is what we are called to do, is to press in. Guys, we can't lead with laziness. We've got to take initiative. We've got to initiate conversations. And ladies, if your husband is willing to do that, please don't blow him off. Take the time, sit down, spend time together. So sin deceives, sin is lazy. In verses 7 through 10, we see that sin brings shame. It says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Sin brings shame. So immediately, in verse 7, what we see happening is that they, as soon as they take a bite of that fruit, death happens. And it's not a physical death, it's a spiritual death. The fact that they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil means that where before all that they knew was good and all that they could experience was good and all that they could understand was good, now they had a comprehension of what evil was. Now they understood sin as well and that caused them to when they look at each other to realize that they were naked. And so all of their intimacy disappeared as they began to sew fig leaves together and cover themselves up, no longer naked and unashamed with each other, but shameful and clothed together. We talked about this last week. At the end of Genesis 2, the word that's used for naked means laid bare. It means that they were open with each other. But here in Genesis 3, that word means that they were exposed. It means that they experienced shame together. But it wasn't just shame they experienced together, but they also experienced shame with God. 
In verses 8 through 10, they heard God walking through the garden. And usually that's something that brought them joy, that they could be in relationship with God and walk with God and talk with God. But now that they realized that they were naked, they had shame and they went and they hid from the Lord. And so God called out to Adam and he's, he's asking him where he is. And Adam responds and he comes to God. It's not a confession of his guilt, but it is a confession of his shame that he knew that he was naked and so that he hid. And shame is a result, a great result of our sin that we experience so often. Uh, Emily and I don't get into a lot of arguments and a lot of fights, but I do remember one that we had a few years ago, and I don't remember what it was about, but uh, I have the really bad tendency after a fight to want to like prove that I am like this incredible like spouse. And so this is just totally self-righteous of me, but I'll like for some reason, I do this by cleaning. And so like, we'll, we'll like have a fight. And maybe this is you too. I don't know. But we'll like have a fight and Emily's off like sad about what's going on. And I'm like, well, I'm the best spouse ever. And so I'll walk around and I'm like slamming the, the uh, dishwasher door as I'm like doing the dishes and like banging the cabinets, putting them up. And I'm like, look at me, look at me. And there comes this moment in the middle of that where God just shows me how much of an idiot that I'm being and I'm like washed with shame because I realize how terrible of a person and how terrible of a spouse that I'm being in that moment. And thankfully, God directed me then to go to her and confess that to her and use that as an opportunity to bring us closer rather than hanging on to that shame and letting it be something that separates us more and more and more. And shame is a real result. It was for Adam and Eve and it is for us in our relationships. It creates distance. It makes us want to hide. It makes us want to stay at work longer. It makes us want to have less conversations with each other. And it gets in the way of our intimate times that we have with each other as well. And some of you are here and you've been carrying shame for, um, could have been years over something that happened a long time ago. And this week, you need to confess that shame to your spouse. Some of you, maybe something happened this week and you've been carrying that this week and you need to have a moment where you can confess that shame to your spouse so that you can bridge the gap and not have those things separating you and not just between your spouse, though confessing that to the Lord, realizing that as a believer in Jesus, you aren't guilty. Jesus took that guilt upon himself when he died on the cross and it was put to death with him. He wore your blame. You don't have to wear that shame anymore. You just need to confess it to God and confess it to your spouse. And it might be something that's big. It might be something that you're scared to death to talk about. If that's the case, again, come to us and we can help you walk through that conversation. We can pray with you before you walk into that conversation. We want to help you be able to have these conversations of confession. So lastly, we see that sin blames. In verses 11 through 13, it says, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. God asked two questions here at the very beginning of this. In verse 11, who told you you were naked and have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And immediately the blaming starts. This is what we do constantly. 
that the same man who last chapter saw Eve for the first time and said, this at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh is now looking at God and saying, you gave her to me. It's insane that he's blaming Eve. And it's not just that he's even blaming Eve for taking the fruit, but he's blaming God for giving Eve to him. He's looking God straight in the face straight in the face and saying, I'm not the guilty one, God, you are. You gave her to me. And here's where we are because of this. Have you ever blamed God for something that you own the responsibility for in your life? Maybe your marriage is in ruins. It's because of your actions, but you go to God and say, God, what have you done? Why do you have me in this? Maybe your job is difficult and it's hard. And you have some responsibility in that being the case, but you come to God and say, why are you making me stay here and walk through this? Maybe you're in massive debt because you've made really bad financial decisions and you go to God and you're like, God, why are you doing this to me? We blame God for our own sin constantly. We are always blaming someone else because if we can blame someone else, it means that we don't have to wear the responsibility for it. Verse 13, Eve does does the same thing. She gets blamed, and so she says, well, no, it was the serpent. We're constantly passing the blame on to someone else, but we can't pass the blame for our own sin. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We have a really unhealthy but natural, because of our sin nature, tendency to throw other people under the bus so we can stand tall. And we do it in all of our relationships, but it's probably the worst in our marriages. Why is that the case? We've got to begin to own the mess for our stuff. And God can't come in and provide real healing and redemption unless we're willing to admit that we goofed and admit that we sinned, that we made a mistake. And I know relationships, these things go two ways. Usually in every situation, there's blame on both sides. But unless somebody takes the initiative to say, you know what, I'm gonna own my part so that God can step in and start redeeming this. Things are never going to get better. So we've got to confess our blame. Our application is really simple this week, and I've been through these four points, and you've noticed that pretty much they're all the same, and it's confession. It's confessing our sin. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. We have got to start talking. We've got to start being honest. We've got to start being open. If we're ever going to experience the redemption that God wants to bring into our relationships. Number two, application. Just forgive each other. And I know that's hard. I know it's difficult. But it's something that has to happen in order for us to see progression. I heard a story a couple of weeks ago from one of the partners of our church sitting down and we were having a conversation and he kind of told me his testimony and it it really stood out to me because it's a great picture of God taking something that's broken and redeeming it. 
in his life. And so I asked him that day, I said, Sean, would you be willing to share that story before our church sometime, thinking about the fact that I was going to be preaching this sermon today? And, and he said, yes, absolutely. And so I want to invite Sean Trotter up. Um, I want to ask him a, a couple of questions and give him the opportunity to share with you guys a little bit what I think is a really powerful story of, of how God can take brokenness and redeem it as long as people are willing to confess sin and, and have those conversations. So, hey, buddy. I'm find this microphone. So this is Sean. He's one of the partners of our church. And uh, I'm just going to kind of ask you some questions and, and let you be able to share from there. So tell me, Sean, what was like life like growing up for you? Um, just a little bit of your background. Okay, so uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Sean Trotter, and, you know, basically, uh, I have grew up here in Berkeley County, been here all my life. Um, grew up in Hanahan back in the 70s, and uh, that was, uh, it was kind of an interesting time to, uh, to be growing up. Uh, the area that, that we lived in, there, the adults that were in my life, um, the adults, you know, that, uh, you know, my, my, my friends, their parents, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a party scene for most of those older folks that we were around. And so as a, as a young kid, I got this, uh, this mindset that life was, was kind of like a party. And so um, when I was in the seventh grade, sometime around 1981, I started making some poor choices in my life, you know, and even though uh, my dad and my grandfather, um, they kept me pretty busy as a kid. Uh, I played sports year-round, uh, nonstop. Um, we hunted, we fished religiously, and we were always very, very busy, but uh, sometime around the seventh grade, I, I started making some poor choices, and that was when I actually first... Um, I experimented with alcohol and, and marijuana. And that carried right on into my high school years. Um, we moved from Hanahan to Goose Creek in 1983. And uh, that was a year that Stratford High School opened. So I started there as a freshman. And um, by the time I was in the 10th grade, I had made lots of friends with kids that, that were basically just like me. I was trying to figure out who I was and what life was all about and and so we were we were doing a a lot of a lot of partying in high school it was a lot of a lot of drinking and a lot of drugging and um from my my 10th grade 11th grade and 12th grade year was um it was totally out of control and uh on the outside i felt like I looked like a normal kid. I acted like a normal kid, but on the inside, I was a, I was com a complete train wreck. And so um, that's kind of what my, my childhood was yeah. like. How did, how did all of that kind of come into play when you met Dana and got into a relationship with her? Okay, so those that lifestyle carried right on over into my, my young adult life. I graduated high school, uh, went went right to work, and a couple years after high school, that's really uh, when I met my wife. Um, 
she, uh, she was attending Clemson at the time and was coming home on the weekends, and I was um, uh, playing men's softball, and I was on a team with one of her brothers, and so she would come home on the weekends, and, and she and I started talking, and, you know, um, one thing led to another, and we got, uh, let's see, we got married in 1996, and we dated for several years before we got married. Let me back up and just tell you this part. So, you know, we dated dated for several years, and, and uh, you know, I drank around Dana, but Dana did not know my secret life. She she was one that uh, would have nothing to do with, with drugs. Um, and so because of some of the things that I witnessed as a kid and the things that I was doing in high school, this lifestyle carried right on into, again, my young adult life. But I, I, lived, I lived a double life, a double standard. It was, it, it was a complete lie. But I had gotten so good at it to where I could put on this front and make you think I was one person, but... In reality, behind the scenes, I, I was I was doing some pretty crazy, pretty stupid stuff. And so, Dana knew the decent side of me. She did not know the the, the dark side of me. And, and you know, unfortunately, uh, I, that's just the type of person that I was. That's where I was at in my life. And so, we got married. Uh, the first uh, four years were horrible. Um, I, because I was I was absolutely self-consumed. Life was all about me. It was you know whatever I wanted to do, I was going to do it, and I could care less about anybody else or anything else, uh, anything else. And so, um, probably about three years after being married, uh, she finally had enough. Um, you know, I was drinking uh, a lot then and just uh, showing myself out. And so uh, she asked me to leave one. Saturday morning, I think it was, and and I did, you know, and I actually really didn't care a whole lot at that time. I was just, a, it was a very dark time in my life. I I tried to reason, I tried to blame. You were talking about mm-hmm. blame just a moment ago, Joel, and, and that, that is so very true. That's what sin will do to you. I, you know, I was kind of blaming her. I was like, man, I'm, I just want to have a good time, and she's, you're, you're getting in the way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I went my, my own way, and we were separated for about four or five months, and uh, and, and we were actually able to reconcile. Uh, we we were waiting on the court system. She'd filed divorce papers, and and I thought it was a done deal. But uh, but we reconciled and 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 got back together, and things seemed to be a little better for for a while. But uh, all along, I was trying to do things. I was trying to get better and do better, but I was trying to do it in my own strength. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would get up and go for a little ways, and then I would fall. And I just kept doing that same thing over and over and over. But, uh, but thankfully, she's such an amazing woman, and uh, she was so patient mm-hmm. uh, with me. She really, she really kind of was a picture of Jesus to me mm-hmm. in the essence that she showed me an unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And... Um, We, um, we'd moved to Malt's Corner sometime around 2003. We, when we first met, we were going to church a little bit at that time, but uh, after we got married, we completely stopped going to church. I did not grow up in church. Um, 
but from a young child, I did believe that there was a God. And, and so uh, when we moved to Moss Corner, she was like, you know what, we're going back to church. And I said, well, fine. You know, we've, by then we had two children. Uh, Sarah was born uh, 2002. Jacob was born 2002. And so, I, you know, I, with the children on the scene, I was beginning to realize that I did have more responsibilities. I, I needed to try to be a better person. And so we moved to Monk's Corner. We start going to this church. And for the next year or so, things seemed pretty good. I felt like I was doing the right stuff. Um, but I would still uh, occasionally um, do drugs. Uh, I was still drinking. And, um, but, I, but I was sitting under the, the preaching and teaching of God's Word, and it was beginning to have a, an effect on me. In 2004, we, um, me and my brother and my best friend went to North Carolina for a weekend. The sad thing about that, that whole thought is, is I, I had been kind of witnessing to them for months leading up to this time because I was going to church on Sundays. We started going on Sunday nights and then on Wednesdays. And, and so I started witnessing to my brother and my best friend telling them, man, you guys need to come to church. You need to come. And it was great. And, uh, but we, the three of us went to North Carolina for a weekend and, and, uh, to do some snow skiing, and, and I parted the, the, the whole entire weekend while Dana was home with our two young children, and by then she was pregnant with Emily, our, our third child. And uh, an amazing thing happened to me while we were up in North Carolina. I was up there doing, doing what we were doing. I just come under this uh, incredible conviction a conviction that I had never felt in my life before and so um, why while we were up there I began to realize that that I, I couldn't continue to live this lifestyle the way that I was living I, I was tired of the lies and trying to cover up my tracks and tired of being two different people basically and so I remember thinking um, you know, I, I can't wait to get home to my family and uh, and see Dana and see the children. This is it. I'm I'm done. I'm I'm going I'm going to make a change. And so that Sunday we uh, we rushed back home from North Carolina. I couldn't get home quick enough. And um, for those that don't know Dana, she's diabetic. She was diagnosed with uh, diabetes when she was 19 years old. And so. She, on that Sunday afternoon, while we were driving home, she. She was in the recliner taking a nap. I had called her whenever we were near Columbia just to check on her to see how she was doing, and I was just rushing trying to get home because I wanted to see my family. And um, she told me, she's like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm in the recliner. I'm taking a nap. And I asked her what Jacob and Emily were doing. They, you know, they were very young at the time. And she said, oh, they're right here with me sleeping in a chair. And I was like, all right, good. I'll be home shortly. And so uh, when I got home, I jumped out the vehicle. I ran to the door. I was just so eager to see my family. And and uh, as I was putting the key in the, the, the door to get in the house, uh, I could hear the kids, the children inside crying. And in my mind, I kind of pictured them fighting over a toy or something. And, and uh, I opened the door, and I looked across the living room, and Dana was in the recliner. And... Uh, she was, she was still in the recline position, and her eyes were wide open, and her mouth was wide open, and she wasn't moving at all. And um, 
Jacob and Sarah were sitting there, you know, about, they were like one and two, two and a half, and they were just sitting there looking at her crying. And um, what had happened was while she was napping, her sugar had gotten very low, and so she was like almost in a coma, basically. And so um, I had to call 911 because she was just so far gone. I had helped her with low blood sugars many, many times prior to that, but she was so far gone I couldn't do anything for her. And so I called 911, and the ambulance came and got her. And we went to the hospital, and, you know, within an hour or so, she was back to normal. They put her on IV, and everything was fine. They checked her out, and they checked the baby out, Emily, and, and both were fine. And so we come back, and, and Joel, it was that moment in my life. I, I never heard God speak to me um, in an audible voice, but he just made it so very clear to me at that point in my life that that it was either going to be his way or my way because I had been playing games with him for so, so long, living that double standard and living that lie. And um, and so it was through that weekend and through that moment, that experience in my life, that I drove the stake in the ground. And I, I, that's truly when I believe I, I accepted Christ as my Savior and the mm-hmm. Lord of my life. Sean, what is that? dealing with all of that and having to walk through that with Dana and, and talk about your past and talk about everything and, and relationally trying to, to take steps forward and allowing God to redeem what's broken there. What, what did that process look for you guys, look like for you guys? And then what has it been like kind of since then? Well, you know, from, from that point forward, uh, Dana finally got uh, the husband that she deserved. Um, now I'm, not going to stand here and say that I'm perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it was that point in my life when I realized that this this life was not about me, um, because up until then it was it was all about me, and so uh, you know, thankfully uh, Jacob and Sarah were too young to really remember what Dad was like prior to, um, but. Uh, you know, God in his grace and his mercy um, began to change my life and he began to change my want-tos immediately and I quit drinking and drugging and, and uh, you know, quit talking to talk that I, that I used to talk and quit hanging out with the people that I was hanging out with and I just uh, just started loving my wife and trying to be a, a good godly husband to her and a, and a good uh, godly father and and it, it's, been, it's been beautiful, you know, um, and it, those, it, it was just something so new and different to me because it wasn't anything that I ever saw growing up. Um, it was a totally different lifestyle, um, you know, compared to what I was used to seeing. And so, uh, but it, but it was just by God's grace, and, and we've continued to to seek the Lord and try to try to create a good solid foundation for our three children and, and that's that's probably one of the biggest blessings for me in this whole situation is that uh, that I was you know able God I was able to allow God to use me to to break that uh, that generational sin hmm. that that had carried on in the Trotter family uh, for years and years and years and so I'm just so grateful that uh, I give God the glory for that that hmm. you know my my children know me differently than than what i i remember my dad and my granddad and so yeah yeah man i appreciate your sharing your story and i think 
there's probably people in this room that that connects with on a, a lot of different levels, and uh, maybe maybe some people who've experienced some of that, and maybe they're you're, they're experiencing it right now. And so, seeing how God is able to take your relationship and bring redemption into it, though it was incredibly broken, it gives a great hope to a lot of people. So we love you guys and appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> I um I realize that. This is easier said than done. That it's hard to have these moments where we come together and confess sin and confess our failings and where we've goofed. But I want you to know that we as a church are, are here for you and we want to help you and we want to provide the support that you need um, to be able to walk through these harder moments so God can work to bring redemption into your relationships. And so in a second, the band's going to start playing. I'm going to be over here to the side and I would love the opportunity to be able to pray with you. Maybe you know that there's something that you need to confess to your spouse and confess to the Lord. I would love to be able to pray with you to do that. And maybe this week, um, there are spouses in this room who are going to hear a confession that's really hard for them to take. I want you to know as well that we are here and we want to do our best to walk with you through that. We have an email address, careatchurchofcanebay.org, that you can email um, to get connected uh, so that we can help you or, or find someone that can help you, or you're welcome just to, to call us, or get in touch with us in any way so that we can be there to help you guys. But here's the important thing. In order for God to redeem our relationships, in order for God to redeem us, we first got to be willing to admit how broken that we are. And so I pray that whether it's personally in your life, you see a need for Jesus to uh, take your sin and take your blame and forgive you, or whether it's in, in your relationship, that you're willing to take that step and allow God to begin the process of redemption for you. We're always excited to see what God's going to do. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're thankful that you are a God of redemption. God, that you, no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, Lord, that it's not a surprise to you and God, you want to see lives redeemed. You want to see relationships and marriages redeemed for the sake of your glory. So Lord, I pray that today is a start of that, that there would be conversations happening today and throughout the course of this week where we see people confessing to you and confessing to people that they love, that yes, they've made a mistake, but God, in doing that, we're able to break down the walls that are separating us. So, Lord, that we can be naked and unashamed together. God, I pray that you give us courage and boldness and grace as we walk through that this week. We love you and are always thankful for what Christ has done for us because it is his work that makes that redemption possible. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. Church, let's stand. We're going we're gonna to sing so.